I've lost a lot of hair since then. I've got a lot of grey hair. But God's grace is getting me through. We're going to turn to Ephesians chapter 3 this morning. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. We'll read the passage. We'll then pray, because I need prayer, we all need prayer, and then we'll get stuck in. Okay? Amen. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. But for this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he will grant you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him, be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word, and we just pray this morning that as we study your word, as we do a deep dive and see what's going on, that Lord, you would teach us, you would teach me from your word, that Lord, we would grow together in faith and in love. And that, Lord, these amazing descriptions of just how amazing you are this morning would become a reality in our hearts. That, Lord, we may leave this place this morning filled up with a fresh appreciation and love for you. And that love may spill out to others in the church and further afield so that people may come to know Jesus. We thank you this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start this morning with a very simple question. What does your prayer life look like? Is our prayer life simply a series of requests? I'd like a new car, please. I would like that new house down the road, please. I would like um, perhaps a new holiday or something special. Is it simply a series of requests? Or is it only about interventions you want the Lord to make in your life? Of course, all of these things are potentially important in the right context, but are you only praying for interventions? Or, does our prayer life, although it contains requests and petitions, start and is grounded in worship? Worship to God for who He is. Do we actually pray because we love Him and He first loved us, or do we just simply stand there and go, I'd like this, I'd like that, Thank you, God, you're a magic genie, and you're going to answer me. Because that's not the way to pray. We pray with reverence for who God is, and we pray in the light of his love for us. And yet so many of us struggle with the concept of God's love. I think it's one of the most difficult things that people struggle with. They go, I'm so imperfect, why would God love me? And actually, if we don't get that right, if we're not grounded and rooted in love then we don't grow as the Lord has called us to grow. We don't walk with him day by day as the Lord has called us to walk with him. If our prayer life is solely requests, if it is solely petitions, 
if it is solely prayers for intervention and it does have no worship element, if it doesn't start where it should do, which is, Jesus loves me, this I know, then there's something wrong. And I, I go to Ephesians 3 this morning because we see here an apostolic example of prayer. We see the Apostle Paul praying, praying for the church, praying the church would grow. So as we explore this passage this morning, we're not only going to see a glimpse into what it looks like to pray like the Apostle Paul prayed, but we're also going to see what theme, what grounding we should have in God's love. So, I'm excited. Let's turn to verse 14. Verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For this reason is the start of that sentence. And it's an interesting phrase because it comes up twice at least twice in the New Testament, but certainly twice in the same chapter. So we know that we're going to ground the context of this passage in Ephesians chapter 3, and indeed in the wider context of the book of Ephesians, and indeed the ministry to the church of the Ephesians throughout the New Testament. So we know that Ephesus was a big city. It was like the Manchester of the UK, the third biggest city in the UK, or in the ancient world. And there was lots of temples everywhere. They were worshipping Diana. They were worshipping other pagan gods. The culture was lost. The culture wanted its own way. And in that place stood the church of Ephesus. That Paul went and planted. And then Paul spent two years in the school of Tyrannus, as we see in Acts, teaching the word. Teaching the word to that church. So that that church would be rooted and grounded in love. And that would be in the Word of God. They would understand the Word of God. So that when people came and said, do you really believe that? Or, oh, you can't possibly believe that. They had an answer. They had an answer from God's Word. Because it is God's wisdom that we see in God's Word. And we need that wisdom every day of our lives. And of course, his presence in Ephesus caused a bit of a riot, didn't it? Do you remember that people kept coming to Jesus? Greeks and Gentiles kept coming to Jesus and going, Oh my word, I've got idols in my house, I better burn them. And it caused such a ruckus that Demetrius and the silversmiths tried to get rid of Paul, they tried to cause a riot. Because it wasn't a good business model for the silversmiths, Jesus being preached and people coming to faith and throwing out their idols, it was destroying their business. So we saw and we see that God transforms and begins to transform that city. And then in Acts 20, Paul warned the elders of the church that has now been established to watch out. Because something is going to happen in the future. Turn to Acts 20, 28 to 29. Therefore take heed to yourself and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To, the shepherd, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So Paul has set the foundation. He has taught the word of God for over two years. And now he says, when I go away, don't take your focus on what matters. Because there are people who are going to come that are going to teach you false doctrines, who are going to try and influence you and take you away from Christ. And then throughout the remainder of the examples and writings to Ephesus in the New Testament, 
whether that be in the book of Ephesians itself, whether that be in the pastoral epistles, or indeed we often forget in Revelation chapter 2, we see constantly this grounding in the truth. We see constantly a reminder to be filled with the grace of God, to remind ourselves of the grace of God, to look at false teaching and to disdain it and to turn away from it, and indeed, what's the biggest thing in Revelation that we see in the Ephesian church? To not forget our first love. Because it is God's love for us that makes anything possible. It is God's love for us that sent Jesus to the cross so that we may be saved. And it is God's love for us that should be the foundation of our walk with him. And that's why in the book of Ephesians, in the first two chapters, we see the theme of God's grace and God's love, repeated and repeated and repeated. And then in chapter 3, we start in verse 1. What do we start with? For this reason. So for this reason, repeated twice in the same chapter. And what does Paul say to the Ephesian church? I'll read it for you, the first seven verses of chapter 3. For this reason... I call the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs, that's a really important phrase, of the same body, and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effecting working of his power. Christ at the end of chapter 2 explains, or Paul explained why Christ was the cornerstone. First prophesied in Psalm 118, verse 22. And now, fundamental to Paul's mission to the church in Ephesus is to explain not only why Christ is the cornerstone, but why he brings people who are different together. And why the church is truly a unique body on the earth, and indeed in heaven. That Jews and Gentiles could be fellow heirs together. That they could be united in the promise of the gospel together. And that the universal body of Christ, which everybody has ever been saved ever in history, and indeed multiple local bodies of Christ, each held, held, held up and led by elders and deacons over the, shep the great shepherd of the Lord Jesus Christ ourselves, how that all works, and how that all should minister, and indeed how that should all be a witness to the world that desperately needs to hear the gospel. The, nobody ever heard this great mystery before. This was a new revelation. This was Paul saying, this is what the church is. It is different people from different backgrounds coming together under the grace and love of Christ to serve Christ for his glory so that people may come to know Jesus for themselves. And that we may indeed grow in the love of Christ so that when we make mistakes, when we get it wrong, when we do things we shouldn't, we know that we are forgiven and if we turn back to our Heavenly Father, we know we made a mistake, I confess, he welcomes us back with open arms. Isn't that just amazing? And then, in verses 8 to 13, Paul then explains the exact purpose of the church. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, 
that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Christ Jesus, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God may, might be made known by the church and the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, to whom we have boldness and access. Isn't that an amazing statement? We have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Paul is making it clear in these verses what grace actually means in practice. The unsearchable riches of Christ is something that we can know in our own lives. And then in verse 10 and 11, he says something really interesting. I'll read it again. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church, by each and every little local body of Christ that's functioning under the word of God, under the shepherdship of the Lord, to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished, in Christ we our Lord. Did you just catch what was said? It is mind-blowing. God in his manifold wisdom, in his amazing infinite wisdom, isn't just winning people for Jesus through the gospel message, through what the Lord Jesus Christ did, through the ministry of the church, but he's using the church to teach angelic beings what it means about God's grace and God's love. Isn't that just... Amazing. God is using imperfect people, imperfect people in the church who have been saved by the precious blood of Jesus to show what it means to both heaven and earth what God's love means and what the grace of God means in day-to-day -day practice. For God to bring together in unity disunited people who love each other and love Jesus above everything else. And he's using us as an illustration to the angels. The church is to operate as an example of God's wisdom at work. That's what it's meant to do. And how God's manifold wisdom is the only way to succeed. And it is an example to those created higher than us, the angels, of what God's love does and what God's grace does. And it's in this context, in verse 14, that Paul says, and now you understand why he says it, for this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is with this mission, this focus, this purpose that he's now seen, that Paul's first response is to pray. And if you just think about that for a second, if you had been tasked with what the Apostle Paul had been tasked to do, which was to be an apostle to the Gentiles, which was to build churches, churches that would be witnesses to the angelic beings, I think I'd want to pray pretty quickly and consistently because it's not in me to do this. It's not in any of you to do this. We cannot be witnesses ourselves in our own strength, but through Christ Jesus, through his strength, through the Holy Spirit filling us, we can be faithfully witnessing to our lost neighbours and indeed to the people further afield, to the angels further afield.
I would say this is an invitation to constant, urgent and passionate prayer to the Lord to make a private prayer closet of your own and get in there every day and start pouring out your heart to the Lord. My prayer life, your prayer life, I hazard a guess, does not look like this. Because prayer is difficult. Prayer requires us to remain on the altar, Romans 12, to stay there and say, Lord, this is your time. I'm going to listen, and I'm going to pour out my heart to you, and you're going to lead the way. And just in case we're at a slight illusion here, and we don't understand how big the scale of this is, in verse 15, Paul says, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Obviously, he's talking about the Father here. Paul is literally saying, I'm going to bow down, I'm going to get into the position of prayer, and I'm going to pray to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the same Father who everything in the universe, everything praises, is named after. I mean, just wow. <laughs> Isn't that just mind-boggling, the scale of how big God is, and how little we are? God is so, 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 so big, and so, so, so amazing, and so, 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 so powerful, and we are just so, so, so not any of those things. But isn't it just amazing that Jesus paved the way for us to know the Father personally? To know Him intimately. We can come to this amazingly omnipotent God, and we can talk to Him. He's our Father. That should power our prayer life differently than maybe it's been powered before. And what is Paul saying here? Well, there's an unhealthy amount of debate in Bible commentary over this passage, which is not necessarily surprised to hear. But what I think Paul is just basically saying is that the Father is the creator and sustainer of the universe. And when we pray to him, he is sovereign. He knows what he's doing. He has a plan. And nothing can form that plan. So we may as well get onto his agenda quickly, rather than battling at him, and just pray passionately to him, because he is the one that can change our circumstances. He is the one that can transform our internal hearts more and more to him. He is the one that does the work through Jesus Christ, through the filling of the Holy Spirit. We must be in the same family, Jew and Gentile, if we're both calling God the Father, Father. Acts 4, 24. Please turn there. Acts 4, 24. The context is the early church. There's Jews and Gentiles in the church. Most, most of the Jews at this point. And it reads this. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Galatians 3, 28-29. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We see a bringing together of different people groups. Jew and Gentile in one body. And that body is the church. Now Jews and Gentiles, um, not necessarily something you think about every day. In the modern context here in Snowcon Trends, but change this slightly around. Rich and poor. Employee, employer. Healthy, disabled, chronically unwell. You've got different people groups. Extroverted and introverted. My favourite little comparison. <laughs> people who operate differently. 
people who operate and are from different contexts, people who may not ever look at each other except in the church, because it's the Lord that has brought the church together. It is not us. It is the Lord's work through Jesus Christ that has made it possible for different people groups, for different ethnicities, people who have different backgrounds, to come together in one body and to glorify Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. Christ's plan in the church is to make this unified body a witness to his gospel message. The world thinks this is completely crazy, by the way. If a non-Christian walks into the church, there are two things they should notice, apart from obviously the preaching of the word of God and the gospel message. The first thing they should notice is our love for each other and how remarkable that is because they never experience that love anywhere else. And the second thing they should notice is that the church is diverse. Not in belief, but in who we are and how we've been brought together into one body. And I guarantee you, that is a witness to a world that can't get on with each other, that can't even agree what to call each other, let alone be in the building together, loving each other and serving the Lord together. In Birmingham, we have many people from many different nations in our church but we are united in Christ and we often say, it's a taste of heaven, this diversity. Because there are many people from every tribe and tongue and nation that are in heaven, together, worshipping Jesus. To the world this is alien. To the world it is alien to understand diversity in this way. Rooted and grounded in love and in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are all made in God's image. We are all precious in His sight. It does not matter where you are from. It does not matter what you do. It does not matter what mistakes you have made. What matters is that you believe in Jesus Christ for your salvation. You have been forgiven of your sins and that you are rooted and grounded in love, working together that truth out in the body of Christ. And if you don't know Jesus this morning, Today is the day to do it. Today is the day to come to Jesus. Because this can be true in your life. You can be forgiven of your sins. You can be cleansed. You can come into a relationship with the Father in heaven. And know Him by the name Father. Not by the distant God in the distance who's big and powerful. But by the one I can come into the presence of through Christ. And pray to and call my Father. Verse 16 and verse 17 of Ephesians chapter 3. Paul continues the argument. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye be rooted and grounded in love. That's where the sentence ends. Paul now turns attention to how the Ephesian Christians, how indeed us, this morning in this local body of Christ, are to serve him with might. And the particular word order and the way in which the sentence is written is very interesting. Because in the Greek, the tenses of the words are passive. And therefore that means this strengthening, this might to serve Jesus, comes from him and not from us. We are not strong. We are not powerful. We are not emboldened. We cannot even get out of bed sometimes at the right time in the morning, let alone have this said about us. 
But with his might, his strength, through his Holy Spirit who indwells us, we can serve God with might. With power to be a witness to a dying and lost world. And in the New Testament, the word might or power is usually talking about being a witness to people who aren't saved, or the church's witness to others. It's an external display of God's love for others. And in a hostile culture, and increasingly our culture is hostile, we need God's might to be a witness. The Ephesians needed it, and we need it. We need to be faithful to God and not fear man. It isn't the only place that this word is used. I've mentioned your other countless places. Turn to Philippians 4, verse 13. Philippians 4, verse 13. I love this passage. And when I'm at work and I'm coming across a very difficult situation, this passage is my go-to. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The strength is not coming from me. I am clueless. I like, I do not understand what I need to do. But that passage can be applied not just to church matters, but it can be applied to everyday life. Have you got a difficult project that's coming up? Pray. Have you got somebody that you want to get on with, who you've fallen out with over the years? Pray. And pray that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Colossians 1, 9-11. For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, for all patience and long-suffering with joy. How do we get through suffering? With joy? God's strength. That is the only way we can go through bad news and suffering and illness and bereavement and whatever else may afflict us and still have God's strength and joy at the end of it. We need his power and his strength in our lives. We need his resilience in our lives. We need to know that our effectiveness, effectiveness for him is because of him. If anything good comes out of what we need for the Lord, it's because of him not because of us. As believers this morning, we need to remember something. Whenever we do something for the Lord, we just need to actually show up. Maybe this morning, I was trying to stop smoking. I was nervous something. And I didn't show up. God can't use me. But if I come and I just say, I'm going to be here this morning, and I don't know what I'm going to say, I don't know how I'm going to say it, but Lord, show me. I'm here and the Lord can use it. All we need to do, no matter who we are, no matter how we're ministering, is to just obey the Lord and shut up. And let the Lord do the talking. And let the Lord do the work. And let the Lord bring about the fruit that we want to see for Christ's kingdom and Christ's glory in our lives. Now, I don't know about you, but have you ever seen a two-year-old do laundry? I'm sure at some time we will see a two-year-old do laundry. Now, Elijah, my son, thinks he's helping. The basket is over there, the clothes are over there, and he's put the clothes into the basket. And Elijah helps Tash more than me. Tash does most of the laundry. And, and basically, um, he gets hold of two or three pieces of clothes, kind of wanders around for ten minutes, 
flies around. And maybe takes some clothes out of the basket, back out of the basket. And at the end of those seven minutes, he thinks he's done a great job. He thinks he's done something really wonderful for Tash and for me. And he's like so proud of himself. And of course, we're proud of him too. But actually, if you were to take the perspective of myself and Tash, we've had a net loss of clothes in the basket. And actually, it's taken far longer to do the job than it could have. That's what it's like when we try to serve Jesus without the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what it's like when we think we've got it in us to do something for him. We need the Lord Jesus Christ to be our strength. We need the indwelling Holy Spirit to empower us. We need to remember that we are small and God is big, but God can do big things through small people when we trust him. And what is the consequences here of the strengthening of the Spirit? Of his empowerment in our lives. Verse 17. This is, this is like my favourite verse of the whole thing. It's just absolutely mind-blowing. <coughs> that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. That ye be rooted and grounded in love. The word dwell here. Dwell in your heart. is really interesting. It's a fascinating word. It basically means somebody is feeling welcome. In your home, for instance. So, if I was to dwell in someone's house in this context, I'd be welcome in their house. I'd be welcome to use the facilities, use the bathroom, go to the fridge, have some food, you know, that sort of thing. It's a, it's a concept of intimacy and a concept of being welcome. <coughs> the same word is used in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, which is the most amazing word, most amazing passages. In the whole New Testament about God's deity. Colossians 2 verse 9 says, you all know this, I'm sure. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead. In, in the Colossians passage and the Ephesians passage, there is this concept of the fullness of the Godhead. And in the passage in Ephesians, the word dwell means to be at home. Within Christ we see the full revelation of the Father. Christ and the Father are one. Yet the same persons, as is the Spirit, the same person, but we have one God in three persons. The question this morning is simply this. Is Christ welcome in your heart? Is he made to feel welcome in your life? Are your innermost thoughts and feelings and desires open to him to correct? Is there some house cleaning to do that the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lord of our lives should be able to do in our hearts? And are we stopping him by saying actually 95% of my life is yours but this 5% that's all good thank you very much. You see Jesus wants to grow us. He wants to take us from being spiritual babes to mature Christians. Mature Christians who can love each other and love their neighbour, and indeed manifest and be able to show Christ's Holy Spirit in us so that we are able to witness to a dying and lost world. It's called progressive sanctification. It's called growing in the faith. Are we staying as baby Christians this morning because we're unwilling to let Jesus do the heart surgery necessary to grow us up? If we believe in Jesus Christ this morning, if we have been born again, we started off as baby Christians. 
But we had to grow. We had to take our spiritual milk in every day so that we may grow. If you're not in the Bible every day, you're not going to grow. Because you need God's word, God's wisdom, the milk and the meat of the word, to nourish your bodies. If you don't eat for a week, you're going to be really weak and susceptible to falling over and being sick and being ineffective. It's the same thing spiritually. If we don't take God's word in, if we don't talk to the Lord in prayer, if we're not going to him daily and saying, Lord, I need you, we're going to be sick and weakly Christians. We need to yield to the Holy Spirit and say, okay, Lord, I know nothing good dwells in me. Clean out the house. Clean out the house. Take my life and let it be consecrated to you, Lord. That's what we need to be saying. And Romans 12, 1-2 is the place to go to. Go, please turn there. Romans 12, 1-2 is our go-to passage about how this works. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. Jesus wants to metamorphosize our thinking. He wants to take us from a caterpillar to a butterfly. He wants to change the way in which we think, to change the way in which we are motivated to do something. He wants to take us away from the thinking of the world, which only brings death and sadness and pain, and bring us to his way of thinking, which says, God be the glory. Jesus is the centre. Instead of being self-promoting and self-aggrandising and being all about me, Jesus wants to change our thinking outwardly, to all about him and to all about loving our neighbours as ourselves. Selfishness has no place in the disciple of Christ. And if we're being selfish, we need to repent and say, Lord, I am sorry. Please change my heart. But in order for this to happen, using the passage in Romans 12, something needs to happen. We need to remain on the altar. And remember what it says, we are living sacrifices, and living sacrifices like to wiggle. We like to get a bit comfortable. We like to wiggle around. And wiggly, living sacrifices have a tendency to wiggle off the altar if we are left to our own devices for too long. This is a call to die to ourselves and to live for Christ. And when we really do that, we start to see our minds transformed by God's love. We start to see our minds transformed by our future hope that Jesus is going back in his church and that we are going to be with him for all eternity. How many Christians this morning do you know that have forgotten the coming of the Lord, the imminent rapture of the church to be with him for all eternity? That is such a tonic to depression and a lack of hope. That even when this world falls apart, we have Christ who's going to come for us. Rooted and grounded in love. Those two words are really interesting. They're in the passive tense again, which means Jesus is doing to us. And there's also a particular way in which they're words in the original Greek language, which means that they have already happened 
but that as we do, as we are rooted and grounded in love, the effects of that process are seen day by day in the present. As we continue to dwell on the altar, the rooting and grounding in love continues to demonstrate itself and be more obvious to those around us. 1 John 4 verse 19 is the entire summary statement of what this means. We love him because he first loved us. And if we live with that as our theme, as our, our focus, we start to have our mind transformed. Galatians 5, 22, 23 talks about the fruit of the Spirit. What is the first fruit of the Spirit? Love. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I want you to take a sober look at your life this morning. What is your foundation? What is your theme? Because the word for grounding comes from the word theme in the Greek. Rooted and themed in love. The, the theme of our life is to be the love of Christ. You see, you might have all of your doctrines correct. You might have an amazing church building. Externally, we may be doing everything correct. But if we don't have love, we have nothing. We have nothing. If we, say, if we see a brother or sister who is falling into false teaching, if we approach that person who is in the body of Christ and rail upon them, we have not love. We need to obviously teach them the truth and help to love them by correcting them, but we do it in love. Not in arrogance. Not in pride. If Christ is the head of our home, if he is the head of our lives, if he is in our hearts and dwelling in our hearts and comfortable in our hearts, then love is the theme of our life. 1 Corinthians 13, 1-8. I've just quoted it, but it's worth reading in its entirety. Because it summarises what love is. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mystery and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. <clears throat> and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long in its kind. Love does not envy, love does not parade itself, it is not puffed up, it does not behave rudely, it does not seek its own, it is not provoked, it thinks no evil, it does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. That's by the way the thing about I mentioned. You need to correct people who are in error, but do it in a loving way. You can't rejoice in iniquity, but you do it in love. And then, it bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things, and love never fails. If love is not the theme of our Christian life this morning, we need to repent. We need to go back to the Lord and confess our sins and say, Lord, be the heart surgeon in my life and cut away this scar tissue which is in my heart so that I can respond in love to others. And I can respond in love, more importantly than to others, to you. Because if we have got heart scars from our previous sins and our previous experiences and we refuse to get off the, 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 the sort of drawer in the cabinet, that's, that bit's ours, God, not yours, then we're not going to be able to respond 
fully for the Lord is the way he wants us to, to respond. There's going to be something there that's scarred, that's stopping you responding in the way we should respond. But if we say, Lord, it's all yours, my life is all yours, forget my will, Lord, your will be done, then he starts to do a work. He takes away the scar tissue. Taking away the scar tissue can be painful, but it's necessary. It's necessary. We need to stop saying, we need to start saying, Lord, your way. Not say to the Lord, my way, and you bless it. That's what we need to start saying. We need the Lord to reign in our lives in every single area, and not just 95%. <coughs> Verse 18 to 19, we're getting there. Maybe, this 18, maybe able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. So Paul is just explaining what it means to be rooted and themed or grounded in love. And he's talked about the scale of that, the, the enormity of that. And then he mentions this little phrase, that again, just going back to Colossians, it's just remarkable that anybody could ever use this phrase of a Christian living for Jesus, a praise that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's just mind-blowing. But it's basically a reflection of the more we grow, the more we're filled with Jesus, and Jesus is the fullness of God, and we are the ones that get to have the privilege of him living in our hearts, and working out his love in our hearts, and growing in his race. And it's been said by Adam Clark, who was a Methodist preacher many moons ago, among all the greatest sayings in prayer, this is the greatest saying. To be filled with God is a great thing. To be filled with the fullness of God is still greater. But to be filled with all the fullness of God utterly bewilders the sense of confounding the understanding. And this is why Paul keeps using all these superlatives and going, amazing, wonderful. He just can't get his head around how big God's grace is, how big God's love is. But he's saying it because that's the best he's got. That's the best that language can express just how loved you are this morning. You may feel that you've made mistakes. You may feel that you're beyond God's grace. You may feel that God doesn't love you because of X, Y, and Z. Newsflash, God loves you. God loves you. He sends his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die for you. To be risen again on the third day for you. So that you may know the love of Christ for yourself. I want you to think in scales for a second. Obviously Paul thinks we need to understand buildings and scales and you know, various dimensions. To think of the tallest building you can ever think of in the world. Apparently the tallest building is the village Al Khalifa in Dubai. And it's over 2,700 feet. If you've ever been at the bottom of the skyscraper and looked up, you go, whoa, me and Tash went to New York a few years ago, and we looked up many times and went, whoa, God's love is so much higher than the tallest building. <coughs> Infinitely higher. Think about the widest structure you've ever seen. Maybe the Great Wall of China. Apparently it's over 13,000 miles in length. God's love is infinitely wider than the Great Wall of China. Imagine the largest internal structure you've ever seen. Apparently, it's the Boeing factory, which is over 4 million square feet of space, and that's where they built 747s. God's love is infinitely bigger than the Boeing factory. But if you think about this in your limited understanding, you'll go, wow, aren't you? Well, you should be, because that's what I thought when I thought about this. I went, wow, God's love is so, so, so big, I can't even get my head around it. But the thing is, God's love is so wide that it covers the whole world, John 3, 16. 
it is so deep that, that the Father sent the Son to die a horrifying death for us. It is so high that it's high enough to bring us to heaven at the end of our lives and to bring us to eternity with him. We cannot comprehend, really, the scale of his love. But we can live in a life of it, and we can ask the Lord to open our eyes to the wonder of his love. Verse 20 to 21. Now unto him that is able to do, ex notice, exceedingly abundantly more superlatives, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. And there ends the prayer. Paul's concluding thoughts in this prayer, his doxology, his praise in the light of his, the glory of Christ, his simple wonder at what Jesus has done. In his simple wonder at the scale of God's love. Jesus has done it all. We are indwelled by the Holy Spirit who brings to mind what Jesus has done and helps us to live out those truths in our life day by day. And when we die, or when we're raptured, we're going to be in heaven for all eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ. For seven years in heaven, then for a thousand years on earth, we think, and then the new heavens and new earth for all eternity. Isn't that just amazing? We're going to be with Jesus. We're going to help to serve Jesus if we're doing faith in our kingdom. And then we're going to be with him for all eternity. We don't teach Bible prophecy enough in the church in the UK. It's a wondrous thing to know our future. And it's rooted and grounded in love. The love of Christ for us. The church is the witness of the wonder of Christ's love. But so often the church fails to appreciate, to teach, to reflect the wonder of God's love because we're too busy with things we possibly shouldn't be. We become distracted by the culture. We come, become distracted by false teachings. We compromise. We try and say, it's okay, it's okay. I know Kevin a few weeks ago talked about things that are not okay in the church. And of course, one of those things is accepting false teaching. We should not accept false teaching. It is a surefire way to kill a church, a local body of Christ. If I was to be approached by a stranger, or somebody was to approach me and say something about a stranger, and it was a lie, I would probably believe it, possibly. Although you're taught to be the same, you're more likely to believe a lie about a stranger because you don't know the stranger. But if somebody comes to me and tells me a blatant lie about my wife, I'm not only not going to believe it, because I never really well, I'm probably going to try and correct her and say, hang on a minute, mate. Don't talk about my wife like that. It's the flip side with us and Jesus. We're the wife, he's the, he's the groom. And when false teaching comes into the, into the realm of the church, we need to be loving in our response, but equally firm and say, actually, that's way off where the scripture is. I know Jesus is not looking at us not right. And we need to do that faithfully. That's part of loving. Loving doesn't just cover over everything. It seeks the truth in love and it, and it shows the way forward. If we know Jesus, really know him personally,
spend time in the Word daily. And if we pray like the Apostle Paul prayed, we're going to enjoy his presence. And we're going to be buffeted against the effects of the culture and false doctrine in the church. We need to prayerfully and lovingly pray that we are part of the solution to the problem, not becoming more of the problem. If our theme, if our foundation is the love of Christ, if the purpose of the church is to show that love to the world out there, to be a witness, then we're doing what Christ is calling us to do. And we're doing it in the way that Paul prayed we would do it. But isn't it interesting that Paul prays about the Ephesian church, and then in Revelation chapter 2, what did the Ephesian church lack? Love. So not only was this a prayer that was for now, in one sense it was prophetic. And Paul possibly even saw ahead and thought, this church is great, but it's lacking something. And I don't want to lack it even more. And we don't hear about the church next today, do we? Because it lacked love. It didn't continue in what the Lord had called it to do. My prayer this morning is if you know Jesus, you would be rooted in ground in love. That I would be rooted in ground in love, and that we would together worship him as he deserves to be worshipped. That our prayer life would be filled with worship before petition. That we would indeed know what it means to taste and see the goodness of the Lord in our lives. And if you never accepted Jesus Christ this morning, and I haven't been in this church properly for a number of years, so I don't know some of you. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour this morning, today is the day to do it. Because we don't know how long we have in this world. The rapture could occur at any point. We may have some further natural disasters or medical disasters or whatever else that means that we have a shortened time here on earth. God knows, but we don't. And therefore, today is the day for you to believe in Jesus Christ. Stop putting it off and accept him as your saviour today. Do not leave this building without knowing Jesus Christ. Don't do it. If you want to know Jesus Christ, it's very simple. You need to accept you're a sinner. You need to know that you deserve, you deserve an eternity away from God in hell. Because of who you are and what you, what you are made of, we need Jesus to do the heart surgery. We need Jesus to allow us to be born again. To do that work in our hearts. We don't go to hell because God sends us there. We send ourselves to hell because ultimately we refuse God's grace. And this is an invitation to God's grace this morning. That you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour. You accept that he is the only way. You accept that you need him. And you accept that he died and rose again for you so that you may know what it means to be loved by God. That's it. That is the gospel message. And that can change everybody's lives this morning. It can change the unbeliever's life from being an unbeliever to a believer, to being sealed by the Spirit, to being in heaven one day. Or it can change your life as a believer because you have to have to remind yourself every day that you are a sinner and you need Christ's grace in your life every day. In order that we may be rooted and grounded in love. And ultimately, as we know, the greatest demonstration of love that we've ever seen in this entire world, throughout all of history, was Jesus' death on the cross. John 3.16. The verse that came to me when I was saved, and it's the verse that I read this morning to finish this sermon off. For God so loved the world that he gave 
his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. If you do not believe this morning, today is the day. Come and speak to me, come and speak to one of the leaders here, and we can be happy to pray with you as you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your wonder, wonderful, amazing, extravagant love. And we thank you, Lord, that as we read your word, we see so much of who you are and so many things in us that are lacking. But we know that it's because of your love that we can come to you this morning. We can ask you to fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. We can pray that you would root and ground us in love and that we would do that for your praise and your glory this morning. Help us, Lord Jesus, as uh, help this church, the local body of Christ, to grow, to be rooted in very love. Help the church that I'm part of, the Flash Park, to be rooted and grounded in love. Help us in the UK, as local bodies of Christ, to be rooted and grounded in love, so that people may see they need Jesus, and people may come to know him as their Lord and Saviour. We pray against distractions, we pray against those things that come upon us, that try and distract us from being rooted and grounded in love, and we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would do the work to remove them from our midst. And the Lord Jesus, in these last days, that we would be fully or heartedly dependent on you to do what you called us to do. To be a witness in this time for the gospel and for the grace of God. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.